I fear not the dark itself, but what may lurk within it. Welcome to Lurk, bringing you creepy, strange, and bone-chilling stories with your host, Jamie Jackson. Welcome to this week's episode. I wasn't sure if I would be able to manage to get this episode released, and it may end up not being as polished as I would normally like it to be, and it might be a little bit shorter than usual, but I wanted to try to get something released on Friday like I usually do. Um, I mentioned in our bonus re-release of the Dennis Martin episode last Friday that things around here have gotten a little bit crazy. Um, We had a family emergency and things are a little hectic and overwhelming in my world. So I'm working hard to get things back on their typical schedule so that I can get episodes released on Fridays like I normally do. Also, I wanted to mention that the top 10 paranormal podcast list for June was released and Lurk has made it back on the list. We are in the number four slot. So major big thank you to everybody who took the moment to vote. I appreciate it big time. Voting is ongoing all the time, month to month, and you can now vote for us for the month of July. It helps us be seen and brings in more Lurkers. And we've had some new lurkers liking the Facebook page and the Instagram, so a big welcome to all of you, and again, thank you. Today we're going to be traveling back to the Appalachian Trail for some more stories of the paranormal from this National Scenic Trail, as it's known. That's the official designation. The Appalachian Trail, or AT, starts on Springer Mountain in the south in Georgia, and it ends in the north at Mount Katahdin in Maine traveling through 14 states and almost 2,200 miles. We covered some stories from the AT in Georgia in episode 57, and also touched on some of the details of the history of the Appalachians and the trail details, so if you want a little bit more background, check out episode 57 if you haven't already. Now, I didn't plan to have this second release of stories from along the Appalachian Trail, um, in what I refer to as the Haunted Trail, which is research that I did for a book that I have yet to write, basically, which I touched upon in episode 57. But the research is finished. It makes for easy material for a podcast episode. And because life is crazy, I decided we were going to do this. And it seems to be a popular topic. So we're going to run with it. Or hike with it would be the appropriate verbiage. So we're going to continue to travel north from Georgia along the trail. As I mentioned, most thru-hikers start in the south in Georgia and travel north when they do their thru-hike. So I have opted to try to follow that same pathway. After leaving Georgia, the Appalachian Trail goes through 96 miles of North Carolina before hitting the Tennessee border where the trail begins to meander back and forth across North Carolina and Tennessee, across the state line. 
The trail becomes more difficult in this area with a lot of switchbacks to make the ascents and the descents a little easier. If you're unfamiliar with the term switchback, basically what that is, um, if you've hiked at all, switchbacks or, or even driven on a mountain, switchbacks are where the trail or the road takes constant serpentine curves back and forth. It makes it easier to go up or down because some people going down hurts more than going up. For me, the going up is the worst part. Going down is not a problem. Um, but they switch back and forth. So for part of it, you're, you're continuously going up, but you almost walk, you can walk straight part of the time. So you're not going straight up. You're kind of meandering up the mountain on switchbacks. About nine miles after you cross the Georgia state line into North Carolina, you come to Standing Indian Mountain. The mountain stands at an elevation of 5,499 feet and is part of the North Carolina portion of the southern Nantahala wilderness within the Nantahala National Forest. Standing Indian Mountain is the highest point along the Nantahala River. The Cherokee name for the mountain, and I'm not even going to attempt this because the Cherokee language is harder than Welsh, if you can believe it, for me anyway. But the, the meaning of the Cherokee name for the mountain is where the man stood, which brings us to the strange Cherokee legend surrounding this mountain. According to the Cherokee people, many years ago, there was once a winged creature that plagued the people living below the mountain. The creature would swoop down from the sky and carry off the Native American children to its cave high in the cliffs. Cherokee people from all across their nation gathered to ask the Great Spirit for help. In the meantime, a warrior was sent to the mountaintop to keep a lookout for the monster. After many days and nights of prayer, a blinding lightning bolt and a tremendously loud clap of thunder came out of the clear sky to shatter the mountain. This killed the winged monster and its offspring. The lightning was so powerful that it destroyed trees and created the bald at the top of the mountain. The warrior who had been keeping watch became terrified of the thunder and lightning and he abandoned his post. The warrior's cowardice angered the great spirit so much that he turned the warrior to stone to make sure he maintained his lookout for eternity. The stone sentinel used to jut out from atop the bald on standing Indian mountain. Time and erosion have since caused the rock formation to fall from its watch, but that isn't the end of the sentinel. It's said that you can sometimes see the figure of a Cherokee warrior standing on the bald, keeping watch. In case you're curious, a bald on the top of the mountain is kind of like a meadow. It's a place where there aren't any trees. It's open space. Just three miles beyond Standing Indian Mountain lies Beach Gap. A beach gap refers to an area relatively high above sea level that has a forest of beech trees. At 4,460 feet elevation, Beach Gap fits the bill with its beautiful large beaches. It also boasts nice camping areas and a good water source. It was the draw of water that brought hiker Duffy to Beach Gap. This is the story that was shared by Duffy. I was getting low on water and it was hot. I came down into Beach Gap and saw a blue blaze leading off into the rhododendrons and followed it a few hundred yards to a tiny spring. I filled my bottle, then soaked my bandana and wiped the sweat off my brow. 
When I returned to where I had dropped my pack, I took off my shoes, put my feet up on my pack, and lay my head back for a rest. A cool breeze whispered through the shade, and as has become my habit, I quickly fell asleep. After a little while, I saw a man standing next to me. He had a shapeless brimmed hat, a brown jacket of some soft material that must have been awful hot to wear, and he wore a curly brown beard and had long stringy brown hair. His faded blue eyes were mildly interested as he looked at my pack. He stood near my right elbow and spotted my water bottle at my left. He mumbled something like, I'd like to look at this just for a minute. As he leaned across me to pick it up, as his shadow crossed my face, I opened my eyes only to see that, of course, I was completely alone. Duffy's story begs the question, was he asleep and dreaming? It's easy, to, it's easy to dismiss such an encounter as simply the imaginings of a mind in REM sleep. However, those moments when we are just beginning to fall asleep are said to be the moments when the veil between our world and the world of the spirits is the thinnest. Perhaps as Duffy relaxed in the shade of the beech trees, his mind was able to suspend disbelief and allow an old spirit to interact with him. Perhaps if you ever find yourself in Beach Gap, Keep your mind and your eyes open, and perhaps you can share a moment with an old man in the mountain. Next, we come to Wea Gap and Wea Bald. The area of Wea Gap and Wea Bald was once the home of the Red Wolf. The wolves were plentiful until the 1860s when a bounty was placed on them, and in 20 years they were completely wiped out. The wolves were so common in the area of North Carolina that the Cherokee named the Gap and the bald after them. Wea means wolf. The bald and gap were also the site of a great battle between the Cherokee and Patriot forces in 1776. During the Revolutionary War, the Cherokee people sided with the British. The Cherokee had hoped that the British could regulate the number of white settlers coming into Native American territories. During the war, the Cherokees raided white settlements in Virginia, the Carolinas, and Georgia. In retaliation, the Patriots sent the North Carolina Army, led by General Griffith Rutherford, to attack the Cherokees. The army of 2,400 troops burned crops and villages and stole or killed livestock. In total, 36 Cherokee towns were destroyed. The Cherokees managed to rally and weigh a gap as Rutherford's men advanced. The battle was both brutal and bloody and Rutherford and his army were able to beat back the Cherokee warriors. As it seems to be with most battlefields, the bloodshed seems to have left things behind. When you're hiking in the area, you may be startled by a disembodied Cherokee war cry, or you might hear the sounds of battle. Others might catch a glimpse of a Cherokee warrior moving amongst the trees, and at the end of the day, when the sun has slipped down behind the hills, you might hear the moaning of the injured and dying echoing through the woods. In the area known as Burning Town Gap, there was once an ancient Cherokee village. During the Revolutionary War, General Rutherford was sent to attack the Cherokee, as I mentioned, in retaliation for the Cherokee raids on the white settlements. Rutherford ordered his men to burn every house, trample crops, seize or kill livestock, and kill any Cherokee who fought back. His army took prisoners to sell as slaves, 
scalped some, and shot and killed others. At the Burningtown Gap settlement, Rutherford's men trapped a group of Cherokee women in a house, set the house on fire, and burned the women alive. General Rutherford's raids also caused long-term problems. Many of the Cherokees starved to death. Fifty-five to seventy villages were destroyed, along with crops and livestock were killed. A hundred years later, the area was known to be a town where freed slaves lived. The freed slaves lived a quiet life on the mountain until items began to go missing in nearby towns. The freed slaves were blamed for the thefts, and they were also accused of harassing the other mountain people. The nearby town, fed up with the goings-on in Burningtown, eventually set the village on fire and burned it to the ground. Today, the area gives off a creepy feeling. Sounds seem to be muffled and a strange presence is felt. People have claimed to have a feeling of depression and become uncomfortable, and still others even claim to be physically sick to their stomach. But all these feelings disappear the moment the person is away from the area. Next, we're going to move to the area known as Fontana Dam. And around the area of the dam, there's a story that says that long ago there was a settler that was killed while he was out looking for his lost daughter at night. And that today, hikers along the trail say that if they get turned around or they're lost, they encounter a mysterious light that seems to guide them back to safety. Now, Fontana Dam itself was built in the 1940s, and it displays several small towns. Farms were taken, and the landowners were given only small parcels of acreage in return, with no assistance. Most of the grave sites below the waterline were relocated, or at least most of them were. Many Native American grave sites were left, along with any graves of families that couldn't be reached. So it begs the question, is that mist rising off the water, or the apparitions of the dead that no one can visit? After displacing 1,300 people by building the dam and flooding the valley, the government promised to build a new road to replace the highway that provided access to the area where over 30 cemeteries were located. They only completed six miles out of the promised 26 and stopped construction in 1971. They claimed that acid-bearing rocks in the area created dangerous runoff when disturbed. Now the road to nowhere stands as a reminder of the government's broken promises to these families. If you visit the area today, you could notice that your electrical equipment like phones, watches, and cameras malfunction. Some have claimed to see robed figures walking in the woods, and others have heard voices. And just in case you're wondering, the road to nowhere is never going to be finished. I believe it was 2018 when the government came to reached a settlement with the county and uh, basically gave the county money and they're never going to finish that road. It's said to be one of the most haunted areas in North Carolina. The Appalachian Trail also has its share of cryptids, the most famous being Bigfoot. I don't think there's a state that really is lacking some type of Bigfoot sighting. In North Carolina, Bigfoot goes by several different names. Pine Tree Charlie, the Wooly Booker, which is my favorite because I am secretly a 13-year-old child and I enjoy um, potty humor and body humor. Boogers are funny. So is poop. Also farting. 
Um, anyway, the Wooly Booger and Boojum, to name just a few. Back in the 1920s, there was a woman who went to put her horse in the barn because of an impending storm. In the yard, she came across a human-like creature covered in brown hair with yellow streaks. She ran for the house, but the creature grabbed her. She held tight to the porch post as the creature tried to pull her free. The woman's husband heard the commotion and came out to see what was going on. At the sight of her husband, the creature dropped the woman and ran. In October of 1986, a witness stopped her car on a remote gravel road to take a break. She smelled a strong, musty urine odor and heard a low, deep grunt. Then she saw a black and gray creature in the underbrush with a human-like face. She didn't stay long after that. In March of 2000, a hiker reported a large creature with black hair walking upright. The hiker was certain it was not a bear. In 2001, a hiker found human-like footprints with five toes that, were, that was 12 to 14 inches long. In August of 2002, men looking for arrowheads encountered a humanoid creature covered in black hair standing upright in a stream. The creature ran off, and it was said to have a very foul odor. Four miles from the Nantahala Outdoor Center, a hiker found barefoot human-like footprints too large for a man in the snow. He followed them for about a mile and a half until the terrain became too rugged to proceed safely. But perhaps the most bizarre Bigfoot story is the story of Boojum and Annie. There was a creature that was said to roam the area near the Appalachian Trail in North Carolina. The thing was not quite a man and not quite an animal. It stood about eight feet tall and every inch of its body was covered with shaggy hair except for its human-like face. The creature was known to make strange noises like lip-smacking noises, grunting, and heavy breathing. Its name was Boojum, and he seemed to be harmless enough, but he did have two all-too-human habits. The first of these was the Boojum was greedy, and he loved to hoard gems. Rubies and emeralds are found naturally throughout the mountains of North Carolina, and Boojum loved to hunt for these pretty precious stones, and he'd hide them away in his own treasure hoards. He was kind of a thrifty sort of creature, and he would scoop up the discarded liquor jugs that were thrown out by tourists and other people in the area, and he would use these to store his gems. He'd fill them up, and then he would bury them in one of his secret caves on the mountain that only he knew the location of. Boojum's other bad habit that made him a little more man than animal, I guess, was that he loved to look at pretty girls. It wasn't unusual back in those days for a young lady who wanted to have a bath. She might head off to the woods to find a secluded pond or waterfall, and there, away from other human eyes, she could strip down to her birthday suit and get herself clean. But Boojum seemed to have some kind of sense about what was going on, and a young woman enjoying herself in the water would often hear a rustle in the bushes and look up to see his hairy face peering down at her. That's a big old dose of nope. Now most of these girls would quickly gather up their clothes and run off back home as soon as they saw him, but one young woman named Annie was braver than most, or more stupid, depending on how you want to look at it. 
One day when Annie was bathing in a stream deep in the balsam trees, she looked up and saw Boojum staring down at her. But Annie didn't run. In fact, she looked into Boojum's sorrowful eyes and saw that above all else, he was just another lonely soul living on the mountain. Annie fell in love with those sad eyes and she fell in love with Boojum and she left her home and her family to go live with Boojum deep in the mountain woods as his wife. As much as Boojum loved Annie, and as much as Annie loved Boojum, Boojum still hung on to his love of jewels. On certain nights, he would leave his bride alone and go searching for jewels on the mountain. Annie, who would grow lonely, would go out in search of Boojum, and she developed a peculiar holler, something that sounded like a cross between a monkey and a hooting owl that she would use to call out to Boojum. Boojum would use the same cry to call back to her, and eventually the two calls would come closer together until they were able to come together on the hills. Annie and Boojum calling to each other was often heard by hikers in the woods. Folklorist John Paris, who said that Annie's owl-like holler was the source of the term Hootin' Annie, because it's a Hootin' Annie, and it got shortened to Hootin' Nanny, which appeared in the language around the turn of the 20th century and meant any kind of party or get-together. It was in the 1960s when the term was introduced to the wider public by Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie that it came to mean, specifically, a gathering of folk musicians. It may be that Annie and Boojum had children, for occasionally, even to this day, a shaggy ape-like creature is seen in the balsam groves of North Carolina. It's also said that there are still jugs of gems buried in the North Carolina mountains. In addition to Bigfoot, and I believe wholeheartedly that Bigfoot uses the Appalachian Mountains as a migration path, and I think that's why there's a lot of sightings along the Appalachian Trail, because I can guarantee you, you're going to hear about more accounts of Bigfoot along the trail as I share different stories over time from the Haunted Trail. But in addition to Bigfoot, there's also a water monster that is said to live in the waters of the French Broad River near Fontana Dam. The Cherokee said that it is a large fish, large enough to swallow a man whole. They refer to this as the Dakway. And I looked up the pronunciation, so hopefully it's correct. There is a legend that the Dakway knocked the bottom of a canoe of a warrior and sent the warrior over the side of the boat. Dakway swallowed the man whole, but the warrior was not dead in the belly of the fish, and he managed to escape by cutting a hole in the fish's belly. Dakway did not die, but he never swam near the surface again and stayed on the bottom. While this might seem like a far-fetched tale, Many divers and others claim to have seen catfish as large as VW bugs in various rivers. Two locations that come to mind are the Ohio River, and I believe divers who were diving in the area of the Silver Bridge in Point Pleasant after it collapsed, which you can hear about in the Mothman episode, which was the very first episode that we did, they reported fish that were the size of VW bugs if I remember correctly. And then in Pennsylvania, in an area called Kinzua Dam, there's also a creature, a large fish-like creature, possibly a catfish, that is said to be big enough to swallow a manhole. It's actually not that far-fetched at all. Watch the show River Monsters. You'll see. 
there's another story from the area of the French Broad River. In the area of the French Broad River in North Carolina, there were two brothers who were out hunting. The game was plentiful, so they decided to stay and hunt raccoon into the night. They ate by the light of their campfire and planned to leave at first light in the early morning, hours. They ate by the light of their campfire and planned to leave at first light. In the early morning hours, they woke shivering. The fire was out and cold, and there was an unnerving silence, no nature sounds. The hunting dogs cowered and the pack horses were restless. They saw a red wolf on the banks of the river, then it trotted off. Within moments, they were surrounded by the Catawba and Cherokee battling. The two brothers fired their weapons, trying to keep the Indians away, but the battle raged on. It was as if they had slipped through some time shift and were witnessing the battle from the past. And just as quickly as it started, the battle stopped. Also along the French Broad River, at Painted Rock, near where the Appalachian Trail crosses the waterway, it was named for the pictographs that are located in that area, there lives a mermaid-like creature. Men who camp there talk about strange dreams of a beautiful Cherokee woman who wakes them with a song. Each night she wakes them earlier, until, eventually exhausted, the man pitches his tent at a deep pool. The voice, louder, comes from the pool, and as he bends to look into the water, he sees a woman just beneath the surface. If the man is tempted and reaches out to the woman, the beautiful woman becomes a scaled creature, and she grabs him and pulls him under to his death. And on that note, that's going to do it for this episode of Lurk. You can find Lurk episodes on your favorite podcast platform or at lurkpodcast.com. On the website, you can also find links to our social media pages and our YouTube channel. We also have merchandise available at lurkpodcastmerch.com. There are several different t-shirt and hoodie designed options. I am still planning on being at the Bigfoot Convention in Staunton, Virginia on June 18th. Uh, My friend will also be there with her business, So Sci-Fi and Beyond, which I have mentioned before. And I believe she's planning on doing a raffle of a Bigfoot quilt. I think it's Bigfoot. I know it's a raffle, and I know it's a quilt, and I know it will be paranormal or or sci-fi themed, but I thought she said Bigfoot. Anyway, if you're in the area, stop by, say hello, buy a raffle ticket, get a Lurk shirt. It all looks like it's going to be a really cool convention. A lot of interesting things and a lot of vendors. So until next time, keep lurking.